Hello, Inside Scoopers. Happy Valentine's Day. February the 14th of 2021 and welcome. We're a little early today. We're really early today. Happy Valentine's Day, Inside Scoopers. I tried to find my cell phone to look at comments and it's just one of those mornings. Yeah, it's early. It's right there on the right side. Hello. Good morning to everybody tuning in. Yes, we went a little bit early today. We're yes. 30 minutes earlier than normal because we were trying to gear up for a Facebook Live, which looks like potentially it's going to be tomorrow. We tried. It's really hard to knock off two Facebook Lives at the same time. I will tell you, it's been quite a week too. I just want to thank everybody for last week, all of the birthday wishes. Thank you so much for breaking my wall. Did you know you could break a wall? It You did, actually. You had to call Facebook, I think, right? I had to call Facebook. I got so many incredible birthday wishes from everybody that it was like virtually impossible to work, function my wall anymore. Uh, and then... We were trying to share like the clips of the week and all of these things onto my page and it was completely broken. But the good news is Facebook has sorted it out. So thank you for breaking my wall. You guys are all awesome. I appreciate all of you. I do think I don't spend any time on Facebook, none. So I don't have my wall isn't flooded with anything because I'm not scrolling. But I did see a very interesting study this morning that made me laugh because that's another reason if I had my phone, I would show you. I was FaceTiming with um, my best friend two nights ago. And as we were FaceTiming, her dog came up and said hello. And both of her kitties came up and said hello. And then I FaceTimed with my mom four days ago and said hello to all my animals at home. It's a thing. Listen, it's not just a thing. FaceTiming with your animals. Yeah, there's like a, there's now like step-by-step -step tutorials on how to FaceTime, Skype, Google Hangouts, Zoom, Zoom with your pets. It's now such a big thing. I remember like when we were traveling everywhere, how like depressed I would be. And yeah. then like yeah. whoever was babysitting, let's say Sarah yeah. was babysitting, she would just take the phone and then, you know, show me my babies. And I would never know if they, if they could see me. Like, you know, you, you, you talk and you'd say hello and you could see their heads moving yeah. and flicking. But yes, so I look, I pulled up this article from Wired uh, Magazine here talking about how to have a meaningful video chat with your dog. <laughs> now, I, sadly, it's not there for cats, you cat lovers. Uh, the article was just written about dogs right there. And, you know, there's a couple of clips of people, you know, having these discussions with their dogs. But there's a there's a step by step. But I like the fact that there is a step by step. So I have not read this article. You just told me, hey, there's an article on having a meaning video chat with your dog. And I so please tell us the steps of how to have a meaning video chat. with Okay, your dog. so just for, briefly. Okay, so 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 first of all, it says, okay, of course, quarantining, social distancing, travel restrictions under COVID has meant now this is the like highest that we've ever seen it with yeah. people globally around the world, you know, video chatting with their pets. Now, the, the debate in science is how well can your dogs tell it's you? It's, and so yeah. there's multiple factors. So if you do want to video time with your pets, according to these scientists, there's a couple steps that you need to take here. Okay, so Melody Jackson, an associate professor in the College of Computing at Georgia Institute, says there is evidence that suggests it may be beneficial for both the owner and the dog to stay in touch virtually. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no conclusive data to determine whether dogs are reacting to your image or to your voice mm -hmm or both. However, we, we do have data that shows that the same area of a brain's dog associated with human attachment or love is activated when seeing an image of its owner. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I believe, and I also think when a video, when I face it with my mama and my kitties hear my voice, they come running to the computer screen and that makes me feel warm and fuzzy. So I do believe it happens with cats too, because my kitties come and say hello every time they hear my voice. I don't know if they can see me, but they look at the computer screen like they can see me and it makes me feel loved. But I think it's more, I think it's voice. Well, according to the researchers, here's, here's the steps that you need. So first of all, you got to focus on audio quality. So there was a show in, in Brazil where a TV presenter was able to train his dog with commands through visual cues through the television. So he could show people oh, at home. Oh, he would hold up his hand and he would do commands. Uh, huh. The dog's name was Rossi and he listened to commands to perform tricks in exchange for treats that came out of a dispenser. Huh. So the owner was able to tra train him through the television. But he said the owner, of course, the most important thing and how they did that was the audio quality itself. Yeah. So you need kind of good speakers to make it sound like you say the experts. So a, And also a strong video connection is very important. And why is a strong video connection very important? Apparently, dogs can see 25% faster than we can. So Aww. they can notice flickering that we can't see. So that might confuse them Interesting. as who's on the other side of the call. Secondly, keep it short, according to the experts. Don't keep it like long and drug out and, and trying to tell your whole life story to your dog. And then choose a good host for the call. So apparently, having a good host is really important. So if there's a facilitator... <laughs> Have a... Yeah. Have a host. So listen, the host is the uh, the host is very important because as you're talking, there's a host like <coughs> dishing out treats. Like how much would you love that if as you are working but, but see, somebody but, was handing you treats? But then I think that that rolls into coercion. Like if you have to if you have to feed your dog to stay there or your cat to stay there and talk to you, I don't think that that's making choices for the correct reasons. Okay. So we're going to wrap this up here. The other thing that the good host can do, if you're talking to a family member, I need you to stand by. I need you to hand my pet treats. And more importantly, according to researchers, take out a piece of clothing. So when you oh, ring, oh, your dog can associate idea. the scent yep. to you, yeah, uh, to the sound of the ring. So there are people, now this is really interesting because I can tell you this. I remember talking to like some of my team on Planet Pause and they would tell me like they would have like specific rings. And so when the phone would ring, the dog would lose it because the dog would know who's on the other call. That makes sense too. Okay. These are all really good tips. So set a ringtone that your dog can cue to maybe initially coerce them with food, but I don't, th I don't think that that's a necessary step. I'm, my favorite takeaway from that article is you should have a liaison, a facilitator that you could pay. Listen, I kind of want to be a Zoom, an animal Zoom facilitator. I feel like that could be a good summertime career, nights and weekends you, or something. Can you imagine making a gig out of that? Like, what do you do for a living? I'm a video I, chat host yeah. for pets. <laughs> but I mean, I swear, I would I would pay for that. I would pay for that if I was away and somebody said, hey, I can come in and I can, I can, I promise I got the technology. I know the right platform, the sounds, everything. So your dogs will know too. My gosh, that would be so awesome. In fact, I probably would never get off. You know, they say keep Listen, it short. Listen, I'm, I'm seeing a future career I for you. I would I, never be able or to keep me. it short. I like this a lot. So inside scoopers, video chat with your pets. Especially and, if you're not with them today on Valentine's yeah, Day. And for you cat lovers, if you're able to do it with your cat, man. Put that online. Did you know, actually, I was also reading in the article that people have Instagram pages and Facebook pages where they share those video calls and they go viral. Really? So there's a market there for you uh, influencers if you're looking for a, you know, a potential hole. There it is right there. I like oh. that. So that was a nice study to start out with. Yeah. The rest of the studies are all super depressing. No, they're not so <laughs> depressing. You know, last week we, we uh, yeah, last week we took a little bit of 
flack for having depressing stuff. I think a lot of studies are depressing, sadly, nowadays, but it's how you spin them and then make them positive. So it's, it's- I, I agree with you. A lot of science is as we learn and we grow, we end up realizing that, first of all, maybe what we did before was wrong or we need to be doing it different or better. But at the same time, that can be reflective of potentially, people can view that as neg- negative. Yeah. And sometimes bringing new science means we learn things that we were doing wrong, but that's not negative. That just makes us better. Well, I, did you see the headline I posted yesterday? No, because I don't, I don't go on Facebook. Wait, maybe I did. Tell me the headline and I'll tell you. Terrible. This headline has (laughs) just been making some segue. Meaty meals and play stops cats from killing wildlife study finds. Now, let me tell you something. I posted this and oh my gosh, the, so first of all, this was like a double-edged sword because first, first people like literally lost it when they were like, why are cats being let out in the first place? And then the other half of people, well, well, birds are food. I don't see what the problem is. And then you had this big giant debate. I have to read this stat before you jump into this. Actually. So I think it's important to read the stats because there's, there's some really interesting. Because because the headline comes out of the United Kingdom, right? So it says millions of pets, pet cats are estimated to kill billions of animals a year, but grain-free food can change the cat behavior. Now, very clever, Guardian, for putting grain-free food because that's how you're going to attract the majority of people in that because we all know that grain-free doesn't necessarily not mean like legume and other things free. But I think what they were trying to, I think they were trying to imply was, of course, foods with more meat. So very, you got to be very careful on the verbiage there. Feeding cats meaty food and playing with them to stimulate hunting stops them from killing wildlife according to studies eating grain free led to cats depositing a third fewer mouse and bird corpses on the doorstep while just 5 to 10 minutes of play with a toy a toy mouse cut the killing by a quarter now listen to these statistics cuz you've told me this before but I didn't believe it I was like there's no way that that's absolutely true there's 7.5 million cats in the United Kingdom. So this is United Kingdom stats. And there's an estimated, they're estimated to kill about 100 million animals a year. There's seven and a half million cats and they kill 100 million animals a year. We'll do the math on it. What is that? We also need to talk about the fact that wildlife populations, the vast majority of them are naturally already declining for so, obvious reasons, yeah. habitat encroachment, toxicity, poisoning, shooting, I mean, all of the reasons that wildlife so, is declining. So on average, every one cat kills 15 animals a year. But in America, it's estimated that free-ranging domestic cats kill anywhere between 4 billion birds and 22.3 billion mammals a year. Billion. That's almost 30, what was that, 20, 27 billion animals a year lose their life to a cat. But the details of the study mm. are really important. Like puzzle balls filled with dry food that falls out through the holes was found to increase hunting by a third. The cats may have simply been hungry. So what the researchers basically found was that feeding a meat-based diet to cats was more satiated and they killed less wildlife. And the theory was What it says is the scientists aren't sure why this is, but I do think common sense is applicable here. Killing was reduced when cats were fed diets where the proteins came from meat. Some cat foods contain plant proteins, and it's possible that these foods leave some cats deficient in one or more micronutrients, prompting them to hunt. It makes total sense to me. Likewise, kitties um, playing playing for 10 minutes, which is the average length of time it takes a kitty outside to stalk and kill a small prey item, 
If you play with your kitties for 10 minutes a day, it dramatically reduced the amount of birds that they kill. I found that really interesting. My conclusion to this study is that kitties are inside board stiff. I do think that they should go outside on harnesses. Like at my house, I have a catio, but my kitties go outside every day with harnesses. So they're outside. They do, they're allowed to hunt bugs, but that's it. So they go outside for half an hour. They can go outside whenever they want in their catio. They go outside and hunt bugs. But I think this plays into dietary requirements Yeah, and boredom. The one thing that really got me in there was the fact that they attributed it to plant-based yeah. proteins and amino acids. And I think that this goes back to the whole, the vegan, can dogs and cats be vegan? Uh, we may be able to, on paper, supply all the amino acids from plants to cats, but I do not think that that's a translational model into them feeling satiated and all of the met, all of the metabolic intricacies that meat based amino acids come from. I just don't think we know enough to long-term say that it's a safe idea. I just don't believe that. Out of the study though, I agree with you. I, I don't like the fact that they called it grain-free food, but I realized now that grain-free because of DCM, it's very, very confusing. So that whole topic grain-free now, people are like, oh my gosh, my vet said don't feed grain-free. And what I realized is, is that raw and meat-based diets are of course grain-free, but that the macronutrients have less than 4% total starch. So those are good grain-free diets. Bad grain-free diets have, you know, 50, 60, 5% starch. So I think that those of us feeding meat-based diets, we need to clarify exactly what grain-free means. So you know what? So this is kind of cool though, because it inspires pet parents now to kind of turn around, look at the back of the packages, like take a look, you're like a very popular urinary SO. You can see all the different plants there that where protein's coming from, right? Rice, corn, corn gluten, wheat gluten, wheat, all of these are used to bolster protein. Yeah. And now scientists will challenge. Well, I mean, this actually will kind of go back to the vegan debate too, right? Because lately somebody posted about vets and vegans, and then it got into the trend in the pet food industry who then have been pumping out articles all week about new science says that cats can be vegan. Well, according to this uh, article, that could be a giant problem. Yeah. And I'm, I'm nervous. I just, yeah. I, I understand the sustainability issue. I understand why we need to be thinking about meat consumption. I absolutely understand, as our last week's conversation was, about the ethics behind factory-farmed animals and mass-produced animals. We've got a lot of room of improvement when it comes to how we raise meat, but I don't think that making dogs and cats vegans is a solution. Yeah. Onward. Um, onward and upward. All right. Where are we going now? Childhood diet has lifelong impact effects of unhealthy food followed young mice into adulthood. Now this one is extremely fascinating because for me, it says a bunch of things here, especially about how we feeding our pets mm -hmm. early, mm -hmm. literally will impact their future. The study is by UC Riverside researchers, and it's the first to show a significant decrease in the total number and diversity of gut bacteria in matured mice fed an unhealthy diet as juveniles, meaning making the wrong, I didn't, I didn't know that because I, you know, when, when we interviewed a lot of microbiologists over the last few years, they could always say you could shift your microbiome in two weeks, meaning if you ate paleo one week, if you ate vegetarian one week, Mediterranean, whatever tickles your fancy, Two weeks and you could shift your microbiome. But according to these researchers, you have lifelong impacts from the decisions you make as a 
as a young juvenile. Which really means your parents making your decisions for you, for humans and for puppies and kittens. Yeah, yeah the researchers uh, deduced that the effects that they observed in mice is equivalent to kids having a Western, Western diet, diet that's high in fat and sugar, and their gut microbiome still being affected up to six years after puberty. So... What the study shows is that there's a lot of things, including the balance. If, if the balance of a child's or animal's microbiome is disturbed by antibiotics, illness, or unhealthy diet. Well, if you think about it, for puppies and kittens, most puppies and kittens are on antibiotics in their first year of life. They're eating ultra, they're weaned from their mama onto ultra processed food without any option for fresh food, which is basically the standard Western diet. It's pretty shocking, the corollary between this study, what the average North American is eating and what the average pet in North America is also eating. We're all eating a lot of ultra processed foods and puppies and kittens being weaned onto fresh, at least some, some fresh living foods can potentially epigenetically extend their life later on. And Nico, uh, Dr. Nico did a couple of papers hinting to that, that early doghood nutrition played into longevity later on. Likewise, if animals live their entire life on ultra-processed foods and then are weaned on to fresh food later on, of course there's benefit, but not nearly the benefit that if they had fresh food in the first year of life. So that first year of life is not just important for socialization and for learning, but it's important for the gut to learn, be restored, and made uh, more resilient through appropriate foods, minimal use of antibiotics, and things that intentionally build the microbiome the first year of life. I'm going to take us into the next slide. This one is sad. Mm -hmm. It's sad the way that it opens up. I had no, I, it just shows you how naive I am to a lot of this. Um, Six to eight million animals that enter rescue shelters every year, nearly three to four million. So 50% of those animals are euthanized and 10 to 25% of them are put to death specifically because shelter overcrowding each year. Like, oh my gosh, yeah. that really puts things into perspective. You don't really know how bad it is till you start reading studies like this. The rainbow at the end of this is the magic behind these new algorithm artificial neural networks yeah. where they've now brought on digital geniuses to help alleviate this potential problem. And I am so excited about this study that's come out. So the breakdown here is logistic regression, artificial neural network, gradient boosting, and the random forest algorithm, all geek talk, mm -hmm. were used to develop models to predict the length of stay. So this is, this is really fascinating because we've had multiple conversations with people in the shelter world. Some will say, the people yeah. that are creating the software will say that some shelters or adoption places are empty that there's not enough dogs. Yeah. Other shelters and other adoptions are like, hey, why don't you come over We're here? Overrun. We are overrun. We are overpopulated. The, yeah. So this new algorithmic network that is being designed now by computer geniuses are literally going into, like it, it's programming it to say, okay, this location, this neighborhood, this shelter that's within that area do we have more gen yeah. zers gen yeah. xers baby boomers in this area here's the type of dog that they're looking for here's yeah. the type of energy of the dog they're looking for then this computer super system can reach out to these adoption places and say hey man yep. 
target area one, two, three, four, five, six are looking for these dogs and they have a better rate of adoption, please take this dog and put it in this area because it has a 90% likelihood of being uh, getting adopted yeah. than in this shelter over here where it doesn't stand a chance. And this is exciting. It's where... super exciting. And that's, that's the silver lining is that technology is affording us the opportunity to communicate in different parts of the country to be able to move animals from low adoption or stagnant areas that have a really high euthanasia rate to, there are some shelters that are literally deficient. They're looking for animals. They do such a good job of adoption. And that has to do, like you said, with the with the demographic of who's adopting the animals in that area. But some, some shelters are so good at placing animals that they're Short on dogs and cats. There's Sharon's comment, right? She goes, here in the lower uh, mainland, there are yeah. no dogs to adopt. They're all gone yeah. during COVID. And it was in New York too. They were seeing the same thing in New York where there was no dogs to adopt because everybody, the puppy pandemic, or everyone was going to adoption sites and adopting dogs. Meanwhile, you have other areas where they're overrun. This technology could be global. And, it, you know, where yeah. there's a preference of dogs. I mean, you know, when we went to, when we were invited to Beijing, I mean, they had total different style of dogs down there, right? Like yeah. they, the groom, remember the grooming and like the puffiness and the hairdos and similar looks to dogs and poodles and so on and so forth that they had in Beijing. Imagine that if, you know, if a dog where people are judging, let's say, based upon looks could be in Louisiana. And now that he has an extremely high uh, adoption rate in Beijing. Yeah. I, I think it's I think it's very I think it's very fascinating science and it's very exciting science to see on the way that we're finally using algorithms yeah. for the good. Well, and it's interesting. There's a Canadian businessman who made the very first software for shelters about 20 years ago in North America's Canada and U.S. shelters using shelter software. He invented it, and because he invented it, he had access to look at the entire North American shelter system. And I said, I was, we went out to dinner uh, a year ago and I said, I grew up in a shelter system and we have a massive over overpopulation problem. And he said, Karen, it's sad that you don't realize there, we don't have an overpopulation problem. And it was so, to hear that, like almost offensive to me. I'm like, oh yes, we do. He said, no, no, no. We have a redistribution problem. He said, we really don't have an overpopulation problem. Animals are not distributed. We're saturated in some areas yeah. and we are totally deficient in others. This particular software will allow for a redistribution in a way that can save more lives. I have my favorite study of the week that Please? came out. I really want to talk about this. Now, I've always been fascinated with the debate of like what animals ate throughout time. Like I've always, I've always, always, always been fascinated with that, right? Because I think it can give us a brief picture into not only the evolution of the dog, right? But what dogs ate ancestrally. And then there's always been debates. Yeah. But this study, this study um, that just came out, they now have technology where fossilized poop is now very, very important. Because with fossilized poop, they, they couldn't do this before. You can find fossilized poop now from thousands and thousands of years ago we never had the technology to figure out you know what it was or, or how to break it down now science can tell you right with dna they could tell you what's in there they could tell you that what the microbiome of the dog looked like mm -hmm. they could tell you if the dog had parasites or not it's so phenomenal because they can show you now like look you know where they can take the poop they can break it down into powdered samples they can even do this with like soil and ancient bones they can get the dna the microbes right? The taxon IDs, the stable isotopes, uh, animal fragments. So 
I found this so fascinating because they, they, they went right down into detail. So, of course, right, dogs and humans had similar diets. A lot of people argued that back in the past, and now science is showing that they did because, of course, living together, whether one's eating one's scraps, whether one's sharing those foods, whatever the case may be, there is some really cool things that came out of this. Now, I, I want to show this uh, here on the next slide, so check it out. Bass was found gar, gar, which is that weird look. I had no idea what the heck gar, gar was. It's that- It almost looks like an alligator snout yeah, with a it, fish it's body. The second fish on the top closest to the right is gar. Who knew? Frogs, ducks, and geese. But they found walnuts. How many people argued that dogs couldn't eat walnuts? You'd never see dogs eating walnuts in the wild. False. They found walnuts. Grapes. Grapes. Isn't it crazy? Like all, all of these toxic foods that people say today that are toxic, but yeah. now you start you start analyzing dog feces from the past and these were things that they ate. We'll what? talk about corn in a second, but here is the big one. Dogs <laughs> ate tobacco, tobacco plants. Dogs, they found tobacco leaves. And now you had a very good philosophy as to why dogs were eating, which I think is, which I, I'm going to say you're spot on. Well, this is just for my wildlife why biology days. Why dogs ate tobacco plants. Go. So, well, as a wildlife biologist, I would say that a lot of wild animals eat tobacco as a dewormer. It has, it has natural deworming properties. So they would eat tobacco leaves as a means of detoxification and... They will, like uh, Dr. Michael Hoffman has found, that animals will roll in tobacco to put the oils on the outside of their body for anti-parasitic deterrence. Like it's anti-flea, anti-tick, anti-sandfly. All of those things, all of those external parasites are diminished if you roll around in tobacco. Now, how about this? They found corn and they're confused as to why they found corn in the poop, it said in the article. They, they, they don't know 100% why, but the theory is, were the dogs foraging on corn themselves or were the dogs like heading to the garbage piles where humans would throw out their food and, tacos. Just, and they were just eating corn? So. I believe that they were just recycling human tacos. <laughs> Who doesn't like tacos? Including... Shuby and Cooper, they both like tacos. They do, yeah. Basically, all mammals like tacos. So if you're going to scavenge some leftovers, like totally go for the tortillas, right? Yes, exactly. Who doesn't, doesn't like tacos? Yes. So. All right. Now you just threw me off. I don't even know where I was headed to on a study. Well, I think we should talk about inhalant toxicants because we're on that subject. So we know that the lungs are this vast airspace. It's delivered. I mean, that's why you can inhale anything and it's delivered rapidly into your bloodstream, which is can be fantastic or completely toxic depending on what you're inhaling. Inhaling medicinal compounds, breathing therapy is a great way to get those substances into your body quickly. Unless you don't have the enzymes necessary to process whatever you're inhaling. That brings us to cats and essential oils. A pretty hotly debated topic. Look, essential oils right now are um, under fire. It, it's such it's such a topic. There was a headline. I, I don't have a slide for it. Uh, there's the headline right there. Pure essential oils are harmful to your cat, Edmonton vet says. Now, th this was kind of twisted a little bit, but there was a woman, and although the post was removed, there was a post that went viral that a woman that was potentially putting eucalyptus on herself. I don't know if she put it on the cat or on her hands. It doesn't say in the article on whether the cat licked her hands or not, and the, the cat was poisoned and died. And, and of course, Karen was like, cats don't have that enzyme in their liver to break down these oils. It's don't mess around with oils if you have cats. And it doesn't just stop there. Of course, 
this guy in Sugar Pop, popular website, vets say that uh, some of these smells are harmful or even poisonous to the point that just smelling it can be detrimental. First of all, I think that Dr. Melissa Shelton has the best response to this entire topic. I believe that essential oils could be slightly more controversial than raw food. I feel like her area of where she lives as a veterinarian is actually much more of a battle than my area pertaining to raw foods and why dogs and cats can eat raw foods. She's Dr. Melissa Shelton's really up against it, but she wrote a fantastic, a really good rebuttal to this article. And it's eight pages, so we're not going to cover all of it. But basically what she says is when you call poison control, or if you're going to report a poison to an animal, they ask you detailed questions. If you call poison control about essential oils, they don't ask manufacturer. They don't ask lot number. Many of these essential oils are actually synthetic fragrances. They're not even true, pure distillates of plants. They're fragrances, which are highly toxic to dogs, cats, and people, I would venture to say. So Dr. Shelton says part of the confusion is that do cats have a different metabolic pathway? They do than other species. And I did a little bit of research this morning. I find this really interesting. Let me first tell you what's happening with kitties. There's a process called glucuronidation. And glucuronidation is how all of our bodies, cats, dogs, humans, get rid of toxins. The downside is kitties lack the gene. They lack UGT genes, uh, uh, enzymes, to be able to excrete certain substances. In fact, the one UGT gene that they don't have is UGT1A6. So that particular enzyme is critical for getting rid of some volatile uh, compounds in essential oils. I've just found out this morning that other animals that are hypercarnivores, including seals and hyenas, also lack this gene, which I didn't know. So it's not just kitties. Some other animals that are, quote, hypercarnivores, the definition of a hypercarnivore is anything that eats more than 70% animals is a hypercarnivore. That category evolutionarily didn't eat a ton of plants. And because they didn't eat a ton of plants, they don't have the enzymes necessary to detoxify from substances included in those plants. It's kind of cool and kind of makes sense. So it's not that kitties can't process essential oils. It's that they do it differently and it takes longer. And there's some types of essential oils like phenols and delimonene that they can't process well at all. So we just recommend not giving anything that has delimonene. So I really appreciate Dr. Shelton's article explaining that essential oils in and of themselves don't need to be feared, but you do need to evaluate potency, purity, and concentration. As with any drug or herbs that have drug-like properties, like essential oils, you want to make sure that you're using them at the appropriate concentration. Just as an antibiotic or antiviral drug in too high of a quantity could be damaging to your body, essential oils in too high of quantities for cats can be damaging to their body. So the key is choose wisely and dilute appropriately. Well, as I was mentioning before, like the misinformation on some of these websites, right? Like I, I just, I had to put this away because I didn't even want to bother reading it. But I mean, it, it does get deep into the fact that it's so deep, like they've got which essential oils are dangerous. And, and what do they say? They say, so the, first of all, they say that uh, a dog's sense of smell is anywhere between a thousand to 10,000 times better than ourselves. So even if we choose something that's safe, it, it could be potent and overwhelming for animals. 
the most dangerous essential oils and to stay away from is cinnamon, citrus, clove, garlic, and peppermint, melaleuca, penroyal, pine. I mean, they basically just picked everything up and down the list. And what's so confusing about this entire topic of essential oils is, so that article says, like, cinnamon is the worst. We're going to show you in one minute how research done on canine skin cells shows that cinnamon provides beautiful antifungal benefit. But... It all comes down to dose, dilution, and potency. In Dr. Shelton's summary article, what she says is that there are a few oils that make the list as being truly contraindicated for cats when you scour the literature. And what she says is bitter almond, boldo, calamus, garlic, garlic, horseradish, mustard, sassafras, and worm seed, as well as pennyroyal, are all essential oils that are not commonly used or recommended for cats. That's the list. Many of those I've never even, like I've never, I have never in my life used Boldo essential oil. I've never done that. When you look at tea tree and all that comes along with that, or with citrus and all that comes along with that, she has really good references as to why those stories have come about and how with appropriate dilution and utilization that kitties have a different metabolic pathway, but that as long as that is respected and we're not treating cats like small dogs, we don't need to be overwhelmingly nervous. I do think if you're going to diffuse essential oils, that you have to, if you have kitties that you use water diffusion and that you give them a room to be able to escape from, that you don't hold them captive in a room where they're basically forced to breathe in air that has been scented with essential oils. Yeah, we've talked about this before. I've, I've went down the wrong rabbit hole with little Shuby here and I was looking for essential oils because I read online that diffusing essential oils for cats was, uh, sorry, dogs was really good. And I got sent home with a fragrance, not yeah. an oil. And let me tell you, that was not a good experience here in the household. It was actually such a bad experience. We did that Facebook Live on it uh, years back where I showed the video of, of, of Shuby's reaction to it. So I, it was a learning lesson for me to yeah. really know your oils. It's tough too when you go in town. Like when you're young and you're reading this, let's say you're in your 20s and you go to one store down the road and let's say, you, I don't know, you want to burn lavender in the house. In one store, it's five dollars in another store it's 20 and another store it can be 60 eight, yeah 60 bucks and then it's like uh i'll just go down the road to where it's five dollars because i mean lavender's lavender right yeah there was a study that we used for the cover photo this week essential oils and their components in combating fungal pathogens of animal and human skin and so this study was done with dogs it was now you want to talk about my video first because sure. when i when i made this video you almost punched me that's my hand right there and that's my Fake cat's paw. <laughs> it is a fake. Can you? Do you have the study? I, I don't know where it went. This is a, a fake cat paw, of which he's putting clove oil on. And my statement was: is you never do this. Like this is what you don't do. You never put straight essential oils on anything. You just don't ever do that. As straight essential oils are the recipe for disaster. Not only can they create like profound tissue burns. It's not therapeutic. Animals lick it off. Those of you that have ever applied oils neat, there are some that you can for humans, but we really recommend diluting it appropriately for everything. So straight dropping them on like this is an example of what you don't do. You don't just pour essential oils on your kid or your cat or your dog or anything because in fact, a lot of research demonstrating oils like peppermint on little kids can give them serious tissue burns. Like they have substantial burns. So what the, what this study says is that cinnamon, thyme, clove, geranium, and manuka oils were all 
therapeutic against ringworm. Ringworm isn't a worm, it's a fungus. Cinnamon, thyme, clove, geranium, and manuka, all beneficial for ringworm. Now, if you Google cinnamon, thyme, clove, specifically cinnamon, you'll and clove, a lot of articles saying anyone who recommends that you use these essential oils, even diluted on dogs, doesn't know what they're doing. And I think that that's where the confusion comes in. What you don't do is pour essential oils directly on anything. But what this study does demonstrate is that the whole reason that we're investigating essential oils is because antibiotic and antifungal resistance is a big thing. We talked about that last week. We have a lot of a, we have a lot of antibiotic and antifungal antiviral resistance right now happening and we're looking to nature to help solve the problem. Plants actually are in a position to not develop resistance because they're evolving as the chemical load is higher in our environment. The plants are evolving to cope with that. So plants and plant extracts, that means herbs and essential oils are a really fantastic way to potentially counteract this growing epidemic of resistance because plants are evolving with the natural world. So their defenses are becoming as strong as everything else, which is why researchers are looking towards natural substances to take the place of antibiotics and antifungals. In this situation, the research shows that essential oils do a fantastic job at ring at treating ringworm. Do they have to be diluted? Yes. Is there more research that needs to be done in terms of duration of therapy and how long to use these for? Of course, this particular study, all it says is that on canine skin cells, it was wildly effective. How long do we apply it? Do we use it as a dip? Do we use it as a pour-on? Do we use it as a shampoo? Do we use it as a rinse. All of those questions have yet to be answered, but I'm excited about this premise that using essential oils to combat resistance is a really common sense, great approach. And I think if anything, it's going to help us as a veterinary community get over our fear of essential oils because sometimes we have infections that are not amendable. They're resistant to all known treatments. And essential oils provides an option of treating animals effectively with a natural substance, no known side effects, but uh, and takes the place of using harsh drugs that are super expensive and potentially maybe detrimental to the body. So we've got room for research, but it's a promising and exciting study pointing in the direction of the fact that the natural plant-based world will have a whole lot to offer as our bodies become more and more resistant to different drugs. So we've, uh, we, we hit the mark, and I know you've got a couple of studies left. Next Sunday, I am that, flying. You're, you're out of here. I'm you're, flying. You're out of Canada. I'm going to a thaw. We got to go back to like virtual, like my little virtual frames that I got to create. It's true. But we're going to miss you, man, here uh, in the Aww. Creator's Lounge. Right? It was a lovely stay. It was really cold. You lived in Chicago. You always complain. And you know, I, I left Chicago because I got so cold. I just, I'm still thawing from All Chicago. Right. We're going to end but this on a high note and we not are, complaining about the weather. We are. Happy Valentine's Day to all of you, Inside Scoopers. Inside Scoopers. You got you That's it. Inside Scoopers. As always, thank you so much for tuning in this week. Happy Valentine's Day, February the 14th. Love you guys. Thank you so much for all the love. Dr. Karen Becker. Thank you. We'll see you again inside Bye, Scoopers. Bye, guys. See you next week.